chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to read together just the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9, and then we will come and look at this portion of Scripture together. It is a well-known portion of Scripture, but I'd like to spend both this week and next week uh, considering this portion of Scripture that is so crucial for us to understand Christmas uh, the way we are meant to. And so let's read together Isaiah chapter 9. Thanks, Gavin, if you can just uh, bring that up from verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian." For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Just so far in God's word uh, this morning, let's just come to the, the Lord in prayer again before we turn to this passage of scripture. Our gracious heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this time in our service where we can come and read your word uh, and hear the truths contained in it proclaimed to our hearts. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would presence yourself with us now, that as we consider what you revealed to Isaiah all those years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ as a word of encouragement and hope for your people in darkness, uh, that that truth would be applied to our own hearts as your people today who live in the midst of darkness. We thank you that we are those who know something of this joy of the light that has dawned upon the earth, but there are still many, perhaps even in our immediate families and close friends, who remain in darkness, and we see that particularly uh, in the emptiness of their lives at Christmas time and how they seek to fill their lives with so many other things. And so won't you just stir our own hearts this morning with a fresh appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and may you make us faithful ambassadors of this truth as we go out and interact with friends and family in the next few days and in the week ahead who do not know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are fast approaching the end of another year. I don't need to tell you that. And I think um, often at the end of the year, uh, it is a healthy practice in our lives as Christians to, to pause at times like this and to take stock of where we are at spiritually. 
We see this often in the scriptures where God calls his people to times of spiritual reflection. There are many passages in scripture where the spokesman for God, maybe it's Moses or the psalmist or some of the prophets or the apostles, they, they call God's people to reflect on God's faithfulness to them, God's gracious dealings with them in the past. And the reason for that is that they would find encouragement in the present, uh, in the trials and the struggles that they are facing, and that they would look forward with, with anticipation to the future grace that God has promised to his people. God's daily future grace which sustains us and gives us hope. And those passages of reflection in Scripture are, are like mountain peaks that really stand out for us. They are there to give us a very necessary perspective on our lives. I think I've mentioned this before, but when I was at Theological College in the UK, one of our lecturers used to urge us, young men, preach the Monroes. I didn't know what a Monroe was at the time, and maybe I didn't quite understand his accent, but the Munros are those high mountain peaks in Scotland uh, which reach above 3,000 feet. For them, that's high. For us, that's not so high. Um, but Isaiah chapter 9 is one of those wonderful mountain peak passages. It's one of the Munros of Scripture which help us to just pause and, and to reflect and to get perspective that we need on our lives. Isaiah chapter 9 was written at a time when God's people were at an absolute low point. They were low in sin and rebellion against God. There was widespread spiritual adultery across the nation. Uh, and the true believing remnant were tempted to, to lose hope in God. And it's at this low point that we find that God gives Isaiah a message for the people, a, a mountaintop experience, a message of perspective on history, which will not only give his people comfort in the immediate turmoil of the impending invasion of the Assyrian army, which was just up the road, but will give them hope which will last into eternity. It's been great to see one of our own honey ridges this past week, Rebecca Groom, uh, summit the snow-capped peak of Mount Kilimanjaro. Is Rebecca back? Becca, well done. <laughs> I'm sure that was an absolute high point in your life. Um, but what we have in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 7, and I don't want to minimize Kilimanjaro, <laughs> but, but this is the Mount Everest of Old Testament passages regarding the hope and the salvation of the Messiah. This is a passage which rises out of the doom and the gloom of spiritual death and rebellion and judgment, and it lifts us up to a height that enables us to see God's great big plan of salvation in the bright light of prophetic vision. As Jesus Christ is presented to us as God's solution to everything. One of the Puritans, Richard Baxter, said that it is from the bottom of the deepest well that the stars shine the brightest. And so it really is, as Israel and Judah are approaching the bottom of the deepest well of their history, about to be taken off into captivity in exile, that God lifts them up with a prophetic word to see into the future the, the bright shining stars of the hope of their salvation 
and the brightest sunshine of their Savior through whom God will accomplish all of this. What a God of grace we have to give his people Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 7 between chapter 8 verse 22 and what will follow in chapter 9 verse 8. Just look back at chapter 8 verse 22. Tells us what will become of those who reject Emmanuel, those who reject the Messiah, who do not trust in him. Verse 22 says, They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. So it's at this low point, at the end of chapter 8, that we come to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is probably about two to three years later after what has been prophesied in chapter 8 has already at least partially taken place. The northern tribes of Israel have been overthrown by the Assyrians as they move down through Israel towards Judah in the south. The cities are destroyed. Many of the Israelites have been taken off into captivity in Assyria. And Isaiah prophesies in chapter 9, verse 1, something quite unexpected. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So Isaiah is... is here on the mountaintop of prophetic vision, historically just after the Assyrians have invaded the north of Israel, this region of Zebulun and Naphtali, and God shows Isaiah that the very region which has just been destroyed by the Assyrian army, that region will be the first to receive something wonderful. Looking into the future, Isaiah predicts a later time when God will make this area of the Galilee, referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles, which, by the way, then implies that this area of the north of Israel, Galilee of the Gentiles, will no longer be inhabited by Israel, but will be infiltrated by people of pagan origin. This region, Galilee in the north, will be made glorious. Now, just before I move on, I must explain one thing from an English grammar perspective. Please don't switch off. Um, Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 7 are written in what is in Hebrew is called the prophetic perfect tense. It's the prophetic perfect, which means that Isaiah is writing about the future in, in such a way that it is so certain that he's writing it as if it's already happened. So it's prophetic, but it's perfect. It's in the future, but it's so certain it's happened. Now, we don't have the prophetic perfect in English other than by translating these verses in the English past tense. But what we are looking at in these verses are future to Isaiah, future in terms of the perspective of history, but so certain that they are written in the past tense as if they have already happened. So let's see what this vision is which God gives to Isaiah of the future. And in the first place, we see one great truth in verses 1 to 3. And it really is one truth, but it has two parts. A great light has shone, and great joy has come. 
And we see this particularly in verse 2 and 3. A great light has shone and great joy has come. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So God lifts Isaiah's eyes above the gloom and the darkness of their present reality, and he gives him this glimpse into the future. And what does Isaiah see? Well, he sees that a time is coming when those who once walked, lived in darkness would have a great light shine upon them. And those who were once overwhelmed with doom and gloom, they will rejoice greatly. Now, what is it that Isaiah is seeing here? Well, let's turn, if you want to follow in your Bibles, it will come up on the screen, turn to Matthew chapter 4, where we are given the explanation of what Isaiah saw. Matthew 4, verse 12 to 17. Now, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Where did he go? To Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here's the prophecy we've just read. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. Verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Isaiah sees a, a future time, the latter days, when the Messiah will come, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will bring light into the darkness and joy in the Lord like never before. So here we encounter Jesus Christ in the book of Isaiah in such a clear and helpful way that this passage before us must surely be, along with Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah 53, the pinnacle prophecies of the Old Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ. Although Isaiah 8 spoke to us about darkness and gloom in Israel and Judah, and we understand that in that context, that would have referred to God's judgment upon them, awaiting literal destruction at the hand of the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Yet we see when Isaiah's vision is interpreted in the New Testament, the true reality of the darkness and the gloom of mankind is actually far greater than simply a state of war and destruction from their enemies. No, the New Testament explains to us that the true state of darkness that men and women find themselves in is not political oppression. Jesus didn't come to Galilee in Matthew 4 and say, I've come to overthrow the world powers who oppress you. He didn't come and say, I've come to deliver you from political and social oppression. No, directly following on from this quotation from Isaiah 9 verse 2, Matthew tells us that from that time, the minute Jesus moved into that region, what did he do? He began to preach saying, repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, this is what the people of Israel and Judah got wrong, and this is what we can so often get wrong today as well. They saw their relationship to God purely in terms of the physical world in which they were living, what God could do for them as a nation, what God could do for them as individual Israelite families, what they could get out of God to make their lives here on earth happy and prosperous. But God was then and always is primarily concerned with our spiritual condition, the state of our hearts, which is why Jesus, in fulfillment of this prophecy, starts his earthly ministry. What is the first words, in a sense, of light that dawned upon the dark parts of the north of Israel are the words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, forget the earthly restoration of Israel, I've come to shine a much greater light on the earth. It's a light of spiritual healing and restoration. It's a salvation which belongs to the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to how John describes this coming of Jesus into the world. John 1 we know it well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And later on in John 8, Jesus speaks to His disciples and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus began his earthly ministry in the very region of Israel which had been the darkest, the hardest hit region of Israel, a region which had become mixed with Jews and Gentiles, and he comes and he shines the light of the glory of God into the midst of utter spiritual darkness. But notice, too, that the light of the Messiah brings with it not only an expansion in terms of their thinking around an earthly kingdom becoming now a heavenly kingdom, but it expands from one nation to include all nations. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3. The prophecy that Isaiah is given says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. What is this multiplying of the nation referring to? Well, we, we know that right from the beginning of the Old Testament, when God chose Abraham, his purpose was to reach the whole world through his covenant of grace with Abraham. And so he told Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 18, Abraham, in your offspring, referring to Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul makes that clear in Galatians 3 verse 16. The offspring of Abraham is Jesus. And through Jesus, all the nations will be blessed. So all, though the people of God had by this time almost entirely rejected God, they had gone astray into wickedness and pagan worship, yet God had not abandoned his covenant with Abraham. 
Even though for a season, then the physical nation of Israel would be gone, they would be swallowed up into the pagan nations around them, God would remain faithful to his promises. And so as Isaiah looks forward to the coming of the Messiah, he does not see the nation of Israel being rebuilt as this one nation out of many, but no, he sees the nation of Israel being multiplied as people from every nation and tribe and tongue come into the kingdom of God, which Jesus has just told us is the kingdom of heaven. It's no surprise then that when we come to the book of Acts, when we come to the rest of the New Testament, we see Jesus fulfilling his promises to bless all the nations with the gospel, the good news of salvation by God's free grace. So in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit is poured out, what do we read? Acts 2 verse 5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? the very ones on whom the light dawned? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. This is like everyone. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Then what we see at Pentecost really is just a, a shadow, a faint foretaste of the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, of the multiplying of the nations. We've seen this recently in the book of Revelation when John is given that glimpse into the glories of heaven one day. We read in Revelation 5 verse 9, they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So with the coming of Jesus, not only has a great light dawned, but with that light of salvation for all the nations has also come great joy. Let's go back to chapter 9, verse 3. Isaiah 9, verse 3. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest or the joy that they have when they divide the spoil after a victory in battle. Once again, we shouldn't be surprised at how God's word ties all together. Because when we turn to the New Testament, we find that the Magi from the East, when they saw the star announcing the birth of the Messiah, we read in Matthew 2 verse 10 that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And when the angels came, we read it a little bit earlier and announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, one of the angels says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In John 15 verse 11, we read that Jesus said to his disciples, 
These things that I've spoken to you, I've done so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Again and again in the book of Acts, as the gospel is preached, as men and women are saved and receive the Holy Spirit, we are told that much joy came to the cities in the book of Acts. In the book of Romans, right through to Revelation, more than 70 times in the New Testament, we have this theme of the joy of Christ. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's an essential aspect of being a Christian, an essential aspect of being a child of God. If Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in you today and you claim to be a Christian, then you are to be filled with exceedingly great joy in the Lord. The apostles pray for joy, work for joy, command joy, and promise joy. So what Isaiah sees in chapter 9, verse 3, as he's given this vision of the latter days when the Messiah will come, he sees a joy in God, an exceedingly great joy, a joy which increases in the people of God, not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, but look there, in their God, he says, they rejoice before you, acknowledging God as the source of all their joy and hope. And so Isaiah 9, verse 2 and 3, we have these verses of great hope and encouragement for God's people, that a time is coming when great light and joy will rest upon them. And that time came 2,000 years ago with the birth of Jesus Christ. But now in verses 4 to 7, Isaiah moves on, and he gives us three great reasons for this hope for this joy. And what we will see is that each of the reasons is linked directly to who Jesus is and what he has come to do for us. So three great reasons in verse four to seven. What you'll notice is verse four, five, and six all begin with the word for. So he's just told us what's going to happen and then he says there'll be this great joy for, and here he comes the reasons. These are the supporting arguments for the light and the joy which has been a prophesied to come to God's people. How can a people who are lost in their own sinfulness, who are suffering under the heavy hand of God's judgment, who are facing destruction by their enemies, how can they find hope and encouragement in the face of that? Well, Isaiah says, reason number one, for the burden of oppression is removed. Verse 4 says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Here Isaiah looks not only at the present reality facing God's people, but actually the far deeper spiritual reality of what this is pointing to. He recognizes that God's people are weighed down by the burden of oppression. Yes, at this time it was literal oppression. The hand of the Assyrians were weighing heavy upon them. Next it would be the hand of the Babylonians weighing heavy upon them. But more importantly, Isaiah is concerned for their spiritual oppression because of their sin. Because of the darkness of their hearts. And he says to them that just as God supernaturally intervened and conquered the mighty Midianite army with just 300 men under Gideon, 
So too, when the Messiah comes, he will be one who is perceived to be weak, as Gideon was. His 300 men were a tiny little, little army. The Messiah will be perceived to be weak, but God will supernaturally come and deliver his people from under the burden of their oppressors. He uses three words there, yoke and staff and rod. These are all referring to slave labor, carrying heavy loads, being beaten to perform your duties as a slave, something which Israel was physically experiencing under the Assyrians but something which we all experience spiritually under the power of Satan and the slavery of sin. And so Jesus comes to us in the New Testament and he says to us in Matthew 11, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember that time in in the Gospels when Jesus stood up in the synagogue? He took the scroll of Isaiah and he turned to the place that he wanted to find and he read this concerning himself. Look at Luke 4 verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is Jesus speaking about? Well, John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, He sets you at liberty. If he removes from you the slavery and the oppression of Satan and sin, then you will be free indeed. And so for us, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So that's the first great reason for our rejoicing, that Jesus has come to deliver us from the burden, the guilt, the shame, and the oppression of our sin. I hope you are rejoicing in that today. The second reason Isaiah gives us for great rejoicing is for the tumult of war has ended in verse 5. Israel and Judah, remember, we're living in the midst of war. And for many years into the future, that's all that they would know. The destruction of war and defeat and captivity. At least for the next 70 odd years, 100 years from this point forward. But Isaiah says, when the Messiah comes, he'll bring peace. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, there'll be no more war. The Messiah will bring peace. But besides the fact that there are over 80 references in the New Testament to peace, it's a major theme of the gospel. Just listen to the words of Jesus in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
See, true peace is not found in the absence of war in the Middle East or the Ukraine, nor in the absence of quarreling between husband and wife and parents and children, nor in the removal of bullies from the school playgrounds. Now, true peace starts with being made right with God, being reconciled to God, having our sins forgiven and being restored into a relationship with God, into a relationship of peace and shalom and wholeness with God. It's futile to hope for peace in your marriage or peace in your workplace or peace in the office environment or peace in the country or peace in Israel without making peace with God. It'll never happen. Listen to Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As elders, we've had some people ask us why we are not praying publicly on Sundays for the war in Israel for peace between Israel and Palestine. And it is certainly appropriate to ask God to end all the many wars which are raging across the globe. There isn't just one at the moment. We should do that more often. War is terrible. But do you see that what Israel needs far more than peace with Hamas, what the Ukraine needs far more than peace with Russia, what countries like Myanmar and Sudan and Ethiopia and Tunisia and Mali and Niger, what they need more than the absence of war is peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our mission's focus every month. And we pray often that the gospel of Jesus Christ would advance in every country to bring true peace because that is why Jesus came. And then in the final place, we see that Isaiah wants us not just to, to see what the Messiah will do for us. This has been great to see what he will do for us. He'll remove the burden of our oppression, and he'll bring peace into our lives. But Isaiah, most importantly, wants us to know who the Messiah is. And so the, the final reason for our exceedingly great joy is for Emmanuel has come in verse 6 and 7. Now here I use the name Emmanuel, it's not in the text for the Messiah, because there's a very strong link in verse 6 and 7 to what Shane preached about at our carol service a couple weeks ago, which was taken from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Let me bring that up for you. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Shane reminded us that his name Emmanuel means God with us. Now as Isaiah is standing on this mountaintop of prophetic vision and he looks forward into the future to the glorious day when the Emmanuel child will be born, he sees something amazing of exactly who this child is who will come to redeem God's people. Look at verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. 
Over the, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So far in Isaiah, if you just go back and you read those first five verses again, there's been an increasing level of suspense and, and build up and anticipation towards these verses because what Isaiah has told us so far is so grand. Just think about it. God will bring glory to the region of the Galilee. People who are walking in darkness will see a great light. The nation will be multiplied. People will be filled with exceedingly great joy. The burden of their oppression will be removed. There will be an end to war and peace will reign. This all sounds too good to be true. Who could possibly achieve this? Who could possibly fit the description of such a mighty and glorious future accomplishment? Well, Isaiah says, I'll tell you who. For to us. A child is born. What an amazing insight into the incredible plans and purposes of God that he would achieve these great and awesome plans of salvation through the birth of a child. But as we will see, as we look on and meditate, as we come back tomorrow and we consider his birth, this is no ordinary child. This is no ordinary son. His name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. What is Isaiah wanting us to understand about this child by giving us all these names? He's told us some of the marvelous things that this child will do for us, but now he wants us to see something even greater, who this child really is. But you'll have to come back tomorrow. You'll have to come back next Sunday uh, to find out more about that. My time is up, and so next Sunday we will spend all our time in verses 6 and 7 uh, to consider from this Mount Everest of Old Testament passages just who Jesus really is. But before I close this morning, I want you to see how this section ends. Just bolded that last line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What does that mean? Well, Isaiah is telling us that this wonderful hope, this wonderful deliverance, this exceedingly abundant joy for God's people, this complete turnaround of events from darkness into light, from gloom into joy, from oppression to freedom, from hostility to peace, it's not reliant on any human being. No David, no Solomon, no Moses, no Paul. No, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God will do this. And he will receive all the glory. It says, you consider your own rebellion and sinfulness before God today. It's part of our time of reflection. It's good to think about the many ways and the many times in which we have profaned the name of God before the nations. Do you not marvel over the fact that God did not wipe you out in his wrath? He didn't even just leave you alone to make a mess of yourself. 
No, he gathered you to himself. He cleaned you. He washed you from your sin. He removed all your idols from you. He gave you a new heart. He put his Holy Spirit within you, and he causes you daily to walk in his ways. What an incredible God we have. His zeal, his intense devotion to his own glory is what accomplished your salvation through the birth and the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what will complete and perfect your salvation until Jesus Christ returns. So may this mountaintop vision of seeing the grace of God to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, praise God, we're not looking forward to this. We can look back. We can look back at all of what is promised here. It's ours in Christ. May this Christmas season uh, be a season where we gain the perspective we need afresh to worship at his feet, where wrath and mercy meet, where our guilty souls were washed by love's pure stream. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Yes, Father God, we want to thank you again this morning for, firstly, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your solution to everything. We want to thank you, Lord, that as a God of grace, you have not left your people in days past in the depths of darkness, not knowing what would await them if they would only look to Jesus. And so we thank you that you have not left us today groping around in the darkness of our own sin and misery, but you have given us your word, which reveals to us the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has come to do for us. You've given us your Holy Spirit to understand who you are, who Jesus is, and how we can be reconciled to you through him. And so we thank you that our salvation is all a work of your grace and your zeal, your commitment to yourself to glorify your Son, to glorify your Spirit, to glorify yourself in and through the salvation of sinners. And may our lives this Christmas be a true reflection of that glory that you deserve as we bring you all our praise and worship in Jesus' name. Amen.